Well, good morning, church, and if you're visiting with us, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and we're actually picking up in a longer narrative of the Apostle Paul when he showed up to Jerusalem, and, uh, and this, is, this, is a, this is a long period. It's only 12 hours, and it's, we've covered it in about three weeks. Um, so 12 hours of Paul's life in three weeks, but that's how Luke wrote it, because there's so much going on. So anyway, as we're, as we're coming to our text this morning, and you're kind of like you heard Asia read it, you might be wondering, what are we going to cover in this text? Well, let me open up with a question. How big is your view of God's sovereignty? How, how big is it? Is God restricted in any way by anything outside of himself? Is he dependent on anyone or anything but himself? Is there anything in this universe that he cannot use to accomplish his purposes in the world? Is there anything? Is your view of God's sovereignty as big and comprehensive as the Bible reveals. Isaiah 46, verse 9 through 10. God speaking. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Now listen to what he does. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. What does God do? Declare things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Proverbs 19, verse 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Proverbs 21.30 No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. And that's just a short list. But this is just a glimpse. These verses are just a glimpse into the mind-blowing providence of our God who works in all things according to his sovereign purposes to fulfill his plan in the world. And in fact, if we were to boil down this, this much larger definition of providence, we've actually used it recently in our study of Acts, to its most simplest form, we could say this, providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. It's not fate, it's not happenstance, it's not chance. It's God's purposeful sovereignty. It's God working in all things to accomplish his ultimate purposes in the world. And anytime we talk about this, we always run into some difficulties in our human understanding. How does this work without just turning humans into mindless robots? Questions to ask, even before we go to our text. Let me, let me just share an excerpt out of uh, John Piper's massive doorstop on Providence. It's about that thick. He says this. 
The nature of God's providence is such that the preferences and choices, whether that be of Satan or man, are really their own preferences and choices. They are blameworthy or praiseworthy as owing to the way that they relate to God in faith and a man in justice and love. He goes on to say, the Bible's clear. God's providence is decisive. His providence is decisive in what Satan and man desire and decide to do, but it's never coercive. That is God's ordinary way of working in providence is to see to it that Satan and men decide and act in a way that is according to their own preference while at the same time fulfilling his own plan. Next sentence is incredibly important. How God does this is a mystery that he has not revealed to us. Quoting Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed to us belong to our children forever that we might do all things of the words of the law that he has given us. So you might be wondering, what in the world is providence? What, what does God's purposeful sovereignty have to do with our text today? Well, in many ways, our, our, our case is, our, 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 I should say, our verses are a case study in the providence of God in that it shows us how God works in all things. How God is actually fulfilling his purposes and his plans. And if you're struggling to see this, let me point you back to the last verse from last week. Acts 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him. That is Paul. He's in jail. He's in the barracks. And he tells Paul this, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And as we saw last week, Jesus is coming to Paul, and he's saying, you're not going to die here in Jerusalem. Your ministry is not going to end here in Jerusalem. You are going to preach the gospel in Rome. Know it. You're going to Rome. But Paul, also know it. You're going to be going as a prisoner, not as a free man, because how has he proclaimed the gospel in Jerusalem? He's proclaimed it as a prisoner. How is he going to do it also in, in Rome? He's going to do it as a prisoner. But that begs the question. How does a prisoner prepare a 2,100-mile journey to Rome? How does a prisoner plan a 2,100-mile journey? Simple answer is, they can't. They're a prisoner. They have no control over their life. Not, not the slightest bit. Yet Paul's helplessness is no hindrance to the God who works all things for his purposes. And we're going to see it this morning. He's going to work in the murderous plots of hate-filled men. He's going to work in the sinful complicity of religious leaders. He's going to work in the juicy bit of gossip that an unnamed nephew overhears. He's going to work in the decisions of a military official who couldn't care less about Christianity. See, I want you to see this. Because the events in our passage today unexpectedly launch Paul's three-year journey to Rome. It's not a small, it's not a fast trip. It's super slow. 
And given the fact that Luke tells us about Paul's journey to Rome before the events in this passage, I think he wants us to see God's quiet but sovereign hand at work. And the take home for us as we're looking at this passage today is this. It's that Christians can find comfort and courage in the truth that God is actively working in both the negative and positive results of our faithful gospel witness. Paul's suffering negative results of his faithful gospel witness. We've seen positive results from his faithful gospel witness. But we can, we can find courage and comfort knowing that God is actively working in both. So as we go to the text today, we're going to have four pieces to our outline. We're going to move through the story kind of quickly, the secret plot, the surprising discovery, a swift response, and then we're going to conclude our time to, to unpack a couple points about the security that we have as believers in the providence of God. So let's go to the plot back in verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they'd killed Paul. There, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They, they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves to an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you're going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near Paul's still in the crosshairs of his enemies, isn't he? Been here in the crosshairs of his enemy. Twelve hours ago, they tried to beat him to death outside the temple. Probably less than four hours ago, the Sanhedrin failed to prove his guilt. And what do his enemies do? Do they give up? They don't. No, more than 40 men bind themselves with an oath before God. Before God, they bind themselves with an oath. They're, oath. they're not going to eat, they're not going to drink. And this vow before God, I mean, just, just, just think of how insane this vow is. They're saying, we promise to fulfill our vow to kill him, or you can carry out your curse against us. But if they're going to accomplish their goal, they need the chief priests and the elders to buy into their scheme. Which they quickly do because the murderous plan provides the priesthood with two essential things. Number one, a way to destroy Paul. And the second thing it provides is, is a way to maintain plausible deniability. They can get it done. They don't have to get their hands dirty. As we look at this, it's, it's like, I mean, what do we even make of this, this group of people who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders bound by God's command, clearly written in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder? But let's just pause here for a moment and consider the murderous plot in light of God's providence. Where, where's this evil plan coming to kill Paul? Where, where, where's it coming from? I mean, it's coming from the sinful hearts and minds of these men who hated Paul and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It starts off with this group of guys from Asia, these Jews. And while it doesn't say the Jews from Asia here, it's most likely, it's probably the same group. 
Is there, is there a threat, a real threat to Paul's life? The answer is yes. If Paul goes out there, there's a good chance he's going to die. But is there a threat, a plan to God's promise that Paul is going to preach the gospel in Rome? It's not a threat to God's plan. It's not a threat to God's promise. See, see, what's he doing here? What's Luke doing in our text? He's showing us how God fulfills his promise to Paul in verse 11. How does God fulfill the promise? He's fulfilling the promise through the actions of both evil and noble human agents. We see both in the text. Because the ordinary work of God's providence is to, is to see to it that men decide and act in a way according to their preference while they're actively fulfilling his plan. It's what happened with Jesus, right? We, we saw this all the way back in Acts chapter 4 starting in verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, church, I, I don't want you just to see this. It's, it's my hope that you can feel this in the core of your soul because there's going to be times in your life that you and I will have to endure the wicked plans of sinful people. It's going to happen. And when those times come, which they will, we, we can actually find comfort and courage in the providence of God. Because, because the providence of God reminds us that the periods of evil are not an indication that the God has somehow broken his promises. It's not an indication that God has lost control of the universe. But that's how we feel. It's exactly how we feel when those times come. But what are they when we see them in light of God's word? We see that they are in some mysterious way, and please keep those words in there, mysterious way. A part of his good and sovereign plan. In fact, we don't even have to read very far in the next few verses to witness the surprising way that God works in Paul's behalf. The plot is is unexpectedly discovered, not by a soldier, not by an adult, but by a young man who is possibly a teenager and just so happens to be Paul's nephew. I mean, it just so happens to be. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's utterly stunning when we come to this revelation. Up until this moment, reading in the book of Acts, We don't even know if Paul has a sister, let alone a nephew. I mean, we don't know anything. Luke doesn't even tell us if his nephew's a Christian. He may not be. Like, we don't know. Yet in Paul's greatest moment of need, who shows up? Is it an angel, like with Peter? Nope. Is it a fellow apostle? No. Is it an elder of the church in Jerusalem? No. It's an unknown family member. But even more pertinent to the story of Paul's deliverance, 
are all the questions that, that, that actually surround this nephew's success. Like, we just read it. Luke's just like, yeah, he showed up, they let him in, he went and talked. Shouldn't that catch us off guard? Who just lets a teenager into the barracks? Who listens to him? Who then agrees? I mean, can you imagine the soldier being told by Paul, hey, can you take my nephew to the commander? He's got something to say. And I can just hear the soldier going, yeah, right. I'm not bothering my commander with some kid. I mean, there's countless barriers. One door doesn't open in front of this nephew. The message doesn't get to the commander. God opens every door. Every door he opens. Kid's message should have been dismissed at any stage, but it wasn't. Because God is actively working on Paul's behalf against the plot that's against him. Psalm 33, verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. Here he's actually doing it to to, to Jews, not just the Gentile nations, but to, to the Jews. He brings it to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. I mean, if God is against you, there ain't nothing that you can do to change it. If you're making plans, he's going to derail them. If you're plotting evil deeds in the darkness, he's going to expose them and bring them to nothing. And often through the most unexpected means, like our text today. Let me just illustrate this with, with two examples from my time studying at Bethlehem College and Seminary. Two examples from inside Bethlehem Baptist Church. One was from the 90s. One was from my time when I was there. So while I was there, we were told an account of something that happened back in the 90s. Back in the 90s, the church is booming. Piper's ministry is exploding. They're doing this big addition to the church. They got a big building project going on. And, and as the project is going along, something very normal and small but important happens in the church. They put in a new, new phone system, right? You got new offices. You need to get all those things wired up. And this is before it was all computerized. Well, anyway, the technician made a mistake. He wired Pastor John's voicemail to the worship pastor's voicemail. Didn't have a clue. I mean, it was just one mistake. Easy to find, not a big problem. Till the next morning when Pastor John goes in and he checks his voicemail to find a voicemail that reveals that his worship pastor is having an affair with somebody in the worship team. Hidden, nobody knows. Revealed in the most unexpected ways. Second, my time at seminary, this is about 2016-17 as I was finishing up. Happened to be that an elder in our church was having a secret affair with a woman in the church. And, and as she was being crushed by the guilt of it all, she, she just, she's just being crushed under the guilt. She has to find a relief valve somewhere, so she gives kind of a cryptic confession to a missionary friend in Asia. Like this woman is in Asia. 
not connected to the church. She doesn't even know that this woman has any connections. She doesn't. But her husband had like one. Woman tells her husband, who quickly calls Bethlehem. The leadership opens up a quiet inquiry. They quickly find out what was going on. They identify the man and take care of it. Not only was he an elder at the church, but he was actually pursuing a pastoral position at another church. God revealed it. If God is for you, who can be against you? But if God is against you, there's nothing you can do. See, I want you to see this because it's easy to feel like God does not see and God does not care about the secret plans of sinful men. We, we think that if there's conspiracies out there, that, that it's up to us to figure it all out, but God has it handled. God does see, God does care. And whether he chooses to expose those plans quickly in the moment or he waits for an amount of time and lets them go and go and go and develop for a while, that is up to God. But regardless of how it comes out, we can find comfort in his providence because it reminds us that he's more than able to protect his blood-bought people and bring about his gospel purposes in the world. Whether that be exposing the secret plans of sinful men or protecting Paul from an ambush so he can preach the gospel in Rome. So how does that journey to Rome begin? A plot, a revelation, and then a response. Let's pick it up in verse 23. The tribune, then he called to the centurions and said, get ready. 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen, notice he doesn't reveal how he found out that. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their own council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul before him. You know, I know, I know we've been going through this for a couple of weeks, this long story, but this actually might be the best thing that's happened to Paul since he arrived in Rome. I mean, in Jerusalem. It's probably the best thing. Like, remember he shows up with this great offering from all the Gentile churches to help out with the needy people, and it's not even acknowledged, at least in the text. 
What's acknowledged is everybody, all the Jews are mad at Paul. Paul, Paul, you better go fix it. Go fix it yourself. Then he's beaten. Then he's hauled out. And then he's almost flogged. But he gets out of getting flogged. And then he's hauled off to trial. Like nothing is going good. Finally, somebody gets him out. First time in three chapters, somebody with authority is standing up for the Apostle Paul. Now, now, are the tribune's motives pure? Oh no, they're not pure. They're tainted. They're, they're surely tainted. Tainted. I mean, he's he's protecting himself in his career. He could be severely punished for chaining and almost flogging a Roman citizen. Yet, yet it's this very impulse towards his self-protection. His desires to protect himself that compels him to transfer Paul to Caesarea some 70 miles away in the middle of the night. He's sending his guys out at 9 p.m. And he's going above and beyond the call of duty. I mean, he sends Paul off with the most extravagant escort. He's sending a group like 12 times larger than the force that's, that's arrayed against Paul. 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, 70 horsemen, 470 soldiers in all to the 40 men who are plotting his death. They make it that night, the 35 miles to Antipatris. The foot troops return. The cavalry continues to Caesarea. It's over the top security. He sends Paul with a glowing letter of commendation that describes him as a victim of religious infighting and and describes him as an honorable citizen that's innocent of any, any crime or wrongdoing. I mean, this is the best thing that's happened to Paul. In fact, these themes in this letter are going to resonate through the rest of his journey to Rome. But what I want you to see in this account of Paul's unexpected transfer to Caesarea. As we're talking about God's providence and how does God move Paul from Jerusalem and start moving him to Rome, everyone we see in this account is simply looking out for their best interests. We don't have a single word of God doing or saying anything. Everybody's looking out for their own interest, but Paul is being moved on towards, towards Rome. The Jews who want to kill Paul and the chief priests who support their plans are doing what they want to do. The nephew's concerned about his uncle is doing what he thinks is right. He's stepping out of his comfort to try to protect him. Even Paul is looking out for his best interest. That's one to think about. Paul just got a vision. You're going to Rome. He's looking out for his best interest. He's sending his nephew up to the commander. Hey, you probably want to know about this. And finally, the tribune is doing what he feels is in his best interest. By sending Paul with this escort and, in, and sending him with this letter, it allows him to gloss over his monumental mistakes by demonstrating his commitment to the Roman justice system in the most ostentatious way. They're all doing what they want to do. Yet given God's revelation that Paul's going to proclaim the gospel in Rome as a prisoner, we're also able to see that every person in this account is in fact serving God's sovereign plan. 
As one commentator puts it, every player in this unfolding drama is doing what they want to do. Yet at the very same time, they're serving the sovereign purposes of God. And while almost nothing is done or spoken by God in these verses, he remains the center of every person's actions. See, friends, this is the quiet, ordinary, and mysterious way in which God wields his purposeful sovereignty in the affairs of mankind to accomplish his purposes. It looks mundane. It looks ordinary. God's work doesn't always look like Moses confronting Pharaoh. Sometimes it's very mundane. In fact, his providence, when we start to see it in the most mundane things, it is the very place that he intends us to find comfort and courage as we struggle with the countless difficulties that we face in life. Especially those that are connected to our faithful witness of the gospel. So I'd like to highlight two ways that we can find security in God's providence. Let's move to some application. Well, how do we find security? Number one, the providence of God. As we grasp it for what it is, understanding or acknowledging, I should say, there's mystery in it that we will never unravel. But the providence of God grounds us in the world-defining truth that everything is related to God. Everything is related to God. Romans chapter 11, starting verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's has been his counselor? Who's given him a gift that he should be repaid? To all those we say, no one. For from him and through him and to him are most things. No, all things. From him and through him to him, all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, see, when we hear Paul say things like from him and through him and to him are all things, Romans 11, or, or that God works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. And then we actually see God do those in the pages of his word. Why do we have such long narrative sections in our Bible that go through this long process of getting Paul to Caesarea? Because we have countless passages affirming God's sovereign control over all things and we need to see it worked out in everyday life. And then we're able to look around at the world in which we live and start to recognize it as well. God has not stopped working. Everything relates to God. As R.C. Sproul would often say, there are no maverick molecules 
in the universe. Not a molecule out of place. To this we could add, there's no maverick actors or athletes or scholars or presidents or congressmen or Supreme Court justices or mayors or even street people. Every single one of them as we see it through our own eyes, are doing exactly what they prefer to do in the moment. But at the very same moment, they're under the sway of God's all-pervasive providence. All things and all people are part of God's all-embracing plan. Ours is to believe that, not to unravel it. CC Church, if we're going to find comfort and courage and meaning in our life, we have to start with this reality. God created the world and he holds it in existence and he governs all of it for his purposes. Everything relates to everything because everything relates to God. And if this is the case, it means that the only place that we can find true purpose in our lives is in our passionate pursuit of God himself and our obedience to his purposes. That's where we find it. I think I've been clear. Like, it, this doesn't mean, this does not mean we're gonna know how everything relates to God. We're not gonna know how they all work together. God is doing millions of things in any one event. We're finite creatures and we cannot comprehend the purposes of our infinite God. As he tells us in Isaiah 53 verse 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Why do we struggle with that question? Why in the world would God do this? My thoughts aren't your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We're we're not intended to comprehend it. Yet while, we'll, while we will rarely know why God is doing what he's doing, we can find courage and we can find hope instead of fear and anxiety and folly when we embrace the mysterious, mysterious truth that God is actually working in all things. Not happenstance, not fate, not luck. Number two. The providence of God grounds us in the world-defining truth that God is working in all things, not just generally, but for the good of his people. God is working in all things for the good of his people. So see, it's one thing to believe that everything relates to God, but that it doesn't relate to me. I'm just kind of left out there, out in left field, wondering what's going on. God's not thinking about me, but that is not the case. No, it's, 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 we need to be convinced in the darkest of time that God is actively and purposely working for us. Some of the most well-known scriptures, Romans 8, 28-30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now it's clear from this passage and the following verses in Romans 8 when Paul says, what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ shall famine or nakedness or persecution. Okay, when he's saying all things, he's not saying nice, easy things. And he's certainly not defining the good that God is working as our health, wealth, and prosperity. The context rules that out. But God's work is defined as two complementary goals. And, and this is where we need to find also our hope. The, the goals to which God is working, the good in which he defines it, is number one, is conforming our thoughts and our desires and our actions into the image of Jesus Christ. What, what good is God doing in this life, ever imperfectly, never completely, he's conforming you and me to the likeness of Jesus Christ? If we have one answer, it's that. God wants to make me more like Jesus, less like whatever I was when I came to faith. And that's the work in my life. Why is it painful? It takes a lot to get there. And Christ didn't have a painless life either, did he? But number two, number two is actually preserving us through the countless trials in our life that ultimately threaten us. They threaten the ultimate goal, which is glorification, everlasting joy when Jesus returns and we are fully conformed to his image for all eternity. Notice, notice when he says, those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. He's, he's saying, what happens when we come to faith in Christ? Yes, there's something in eternity past, but there is something also said in eternity future. We will be glorified forever, and that'll happen when Christ returns, and God is going to make sure it happens. God's goals in our lives. But here's the key. Just like Paul's entire experience in Jerusalem, which has not looked very good, we need to recognize the truth that the all things through which God is working for his glory and our good are not always inherently good and righteous things. We go through events that are not good. God doesn't call the evil that comes against us good. He says, in all things, I'm working good. And I know it doesn't always make sense because the process is painful and it's bewildering and it causes us to hold on to God in the darkness in ways that we could never ever be forced to do or find in the light. We find deeper faith. 
Yet this is the very reason why God gave us passages like Romans chapter 8 and Isaiah 55 and Romans 11 in the first place. So that we could have solid ground under our feet. Something to hold on into the darkest of times. So that along with King David, we can say, the Lord is my shepherd. Right? I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Notice he doesn't stop at verse 3. Does he? Even though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, God doesn't keep me in the green pastures. Go through the valley of shadow death. I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Notice he's saying, I'm not going to fear no evil because I know how it's all working. He's just going to say, he's saying, I know, I know I can trust you in the darkness. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You're going to hold me when I face my enemies. And on account of all this on who our God is, David concludes and says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We can't have the conviction of Psalm 23 without a vision for God that is so massive and glorious and all-encompassing that all things are a part of his work. See, this is where the vision of God's providence shapes our minds and our affections. And through it, we become less vulnerable. Not impervious. (laughs) I wish but less vulnerable to the panic and fear and dread that come in our lives. And we're less vulnerable not because we don't have any difficult circumstances, but we're convinced that God is always weaving something wise and something good out of the painful and confusing threads that comprise our lives. That is the safety and that is the security and the hope and the comfort that we can find in his good and sovereign providence. Let's close in a word of prayer.